He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Turn in your copy of God's word to Mark chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 2 to 13. A long time ago, not that long ago, but it seems like it, it certainly feels like a long time ago, Redemption Hill Church met across the hallway here on Thursday evenings to study the Bible together. And that was all we did on a weekly basis. And when we did that together, we walked through the book of Mark, chapter 1, to the end of chapter 8, verse 9-1. And so we have already walked this as well, and we are, we are getting in. So we're kind of picking, off, picking up where we left off um, there in Mark chapter 9, and we're going to go all the way to chapter 16, to the end. And this is going to take us roughly six months to do, well, actually closer to seven as we start today, and we'll end uh, towards the end of July, Lord willing. And we should say Lord willing for sure, because who knows what the future holds in these crazy days. But that's, that's our plan. We're going to walk through that. Because as I prayed and, and sought the Lord and thought, where do we need to go next after our, this Christmas series I came to a place where, as a new church, it is really important that we get to know Jesus. And so the, the title of this sermon series is going to be Jesus, Servant King. And the subtitle of the series is Getting to Know Our Savior. And so that's really what we want to be about for the next seven months. Now, obviously we want to be about that all the time. But I'm just saying we're really honing in in the next seven months or so here at Redemption Hill Church what it means to really get to know the heart of Jesus, to walk through. And we title that sermon series Servant King because that's what we want to see. We want to see in the book of Mark, what he, Mark is going to show us is that Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the one who, who rules everything, who's in total control, but Jesus is unlike earthly kings. He's nothing like earthly kings. Earthly kings, worldly kings, use their power and their authority to lift themselves up. They make others serve them. But Jesus, probably one of the most quoted verses from the book of Mark is Mark 10, 45, where Jesus says, he did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And that's what we want to see is that Jesus uses his authority, uses his power for other people. He lays himself down and brings himself low or lowly. He is gentle and lowly in heart, like we'll talk about in the book, so that he might raise us up. And that's an amazing thing that we get to look at the very heart of Christ. And that's really where the context, that's where chapter 8 of the book of Mark ends is Jesus kind of teaching that. He, re- he starts to reveal who he is and what's going on in the book of Mark, and in that he starts t- foretelling of his death and resurrection. And so we see there at the end of chapter 8, what's been happening in Mark 1 to Mark 8 is Jesus has been performing these amazing miracles, and people are starting to figure out who he is. And he keeps doing things like saying, don't tell anybody what I've done. 
See, he's not ready to reveal himself yet. But we get to the end of Mark chapter 8, and Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter looks to him and says, you are the Christ. Now, the word Christ just means the anointed one. So what's really funny is, is Peter gets it right. Jesus is the Christ, but Peter doesn't really know what he's saying when he says that. Peter thinks that the Christ, the Messiah, is going to come and kick the Romans out of Israel. He thinks that he's going to come and establish an earthly kingdom right here, right now. And that's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is establishing an, a, a heavenly kingdom. And Jesus isn't coming to save them from the Romans, but he's coming to save them from their sin. But Peter doesn't get that. And so when Jesus says, I'm going to die and resurrect from the dead, Peter takes Jesus to the side and Peter rebukes Jesus, which is hilarious, right? Like, you know, rebuke Jesus. Are you crazy? But he does because Peter's just that kind of guy. And we'll see that again. He's just always got his foot in his mouth. He's like me. I I relate to Peter a lot. But that's what Peter does. And he tells him that. And Jesus tells him, get behind me, Satan. Tells Peter what you're saying. Listen, no, no, no. This is what has to happen. I have to die for the sake of my people so I might save them from their sin. And that's kind of the context that we start to see as we move in to Mark chapter 9, verse 2. Jesus is telling them about the suffering that he will have to endure. And then he tells them, that there are some standing there who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God in verse one there. And that's what sets up this particular story. So what we want to see is that Jesus is revealing himself in the book of Mark. And we're going to see that he is revealing three things in what's called the transfiguration. So this particular event actually is so monumental that it gets its own name. It's called the transfiguration, where Jesus is going to transfigure or change himself, reveal himself to them. And we're going to see that he's going to reveal his radiance, his power, and finally he will again reveal his suffering. And so that's what we're going to see as we work through verses 2 through 13. And I want to go ahead and read all of those so we can have this entire story in our minds before we start preaching through it. So picking up there in verse 2, and please Excuse my cough drop, but I'm telling you, as distracting as the cough drop might be, me hacking up a lung up here would be even more distracting. Okay, so I'll have to adjust it in my mouth from time to time. Verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to him Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. said, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning, what is this rising from the dead might mean? And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things, and how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So as we look at this, this is this event. You kind of see these big things happening here. Peter, James, and John 
are taken up to a high mountain. And we want to look at this as Jesus reveals his radiance to them, these first two verses, verses two and three. And they go up to this high mountain, and that's a that's a storytelling mechanism that Mark has been using throughout the gospel, using kind of the setting. And we know when we're reading the Bible that a lot of times when God goes to a high, brings somebody to a high mountain, God shows up. And something really special happens. And in particular, we'll, we're going to see two of those characters even show up here in the Old Testament. Moses goes to a high mountain and receives the Ten Commandments. Elijah goes to a high mountain and hears the small, quiet voice of God. This is something that's happening. And so they go up to this high mountain, and as they're going up, it's Peter, James, and John. Jesus just takes these specific three, and we're not really sure why, other than it does seem that throughout the Gospels, Jesus is bringing these three closer and closer to himself. And perhaps maybe a little side note is just this reminder that Jesus, even as a perfect human, had people who were closer to him than others. Didn't mean that he didn't love everyone, but sometimes we have to remember that not everybody can be my very, very best friend. Sometimes it's okay just to say, I'm closer to some people than I am to others, and that's okay. And it seems just a little side tangent there. What a good thing to see that even Jesus had close and intimate relationships, and he brings Peter, James, and John up here so they might see this, and that he was the end of verse two there, and he was transfigured before them. That word just means to be changed. It comes from a word that kind of sounds like metamorphosis. If you can kind of think like when a caterpillar goes in a cocoon, becomes a butterfly. But at the heart of that word is to be changed to its essential essence, its actual nature. The transfiguration isn't changing Jesus. What it's doing is he's going through a change. He's changing before them to show them his glory. See, what we see in the incarnation, which is another way to say when Jesus becomes a man, right, is born of a virgin, like we talked about at Christmas time, Jesus temporarily lays aside some of his divine attributes for our sake. And in this, he is showing them who he is as God that he is otherworldly, that he is radiant, and that he is quite beautiful. See, this is an amazing thing that we see, and it tells us there, and there appeared, excuse me, uh, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And and even in in Matthew's account of this, tells us that his face was shining. His very face is shining, and his clothes are radiant, and it's so much so radiant that nobody on earth would be able to make them as white as these clothes were. That he's literally otherworldly. I have a grandma, my grandma Judy, who is the queen of all things domestic. She can get a stain out of anything. She is as clean as clean gets. She is in her uh, 70s now. When she comes to my house, she'll still find things to clean all the time. She's always making things really nice and clean wherever they are. You can't get a stain out of something, call my grandma Judy. She will know how to take care of it. She'll know how to make these things happen. So much so that when we were growing up as kids, my parents would ask us things like this. Is your room clean? And we'd say, yeah, yeah, our room's clean. Is it grandma Judy clean? That's what they would say. That became a catchphrase in my house. Is it grandma Judy clean? And we would say, I'll be right back. And we'd go upstairs and we'd clean because we knew if grandma Judy came over and went to our room, that it would have to pass some, some inspection, and the standards were very, very high. But we want to know is that even Grandma Judy could not get these clothes that white. That, that in all of this, he's telling us, why is that a thing? Like, as white as nobody on earth can do it. Because he's trying to show us, because Jesus is, he's not earthly. He's not contained here. He is 
out of this world amazing. He is radiant and beautiful. Nothing on this earth compares to him. And when, when he puts on clothes and he lets his glory go, those clothes change in such a way that nothing else can look like it. Nothing else can hold a light to it. Hebrews 1.3 just tells us that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is showing us his radiance. He is showing us his beauty. And for us, I think that's so important because we have to think through. When you think about God, when you think about Jesus, what do you think about? Do you see him as being beautiful? Do you see him as someone to behold and admire? Or do you see God as like a a vending machine God who's there to just... If you hit the right buttons, he's just going to give you what you want. Do you see God as someone who's there to serve you? Or do you see God as someone to behold and be amazed by? A.W. Tozer in his book called Knowledge of the Holy says this. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. See, what Tozer is trying to get at there is the place God takes in your life will impact where everything else falls. If God isn't number one, your life is going to get out of whack. It's going to get out of order and it's going to get chaotic. God has to be number one, which is what that text that we read in Colossians for our scripture reading this morning, where it says that he is preeminent, that's what that means. He's first. He's number one. He's at the top of the list. So we have to think, what do we think about when we think about God? What I want us to see is that he's radiant, that he's beautiful, that he's something to behold. See, the application point from this passage is this, is we must see Christ as he truly is. He is somebody to be beholden. We are beholden to him. We must hold him in high view and stature. See, oh, you're so beautiful. You're amazing to me. And as we join with Peter and James and John and gazing at the radiance of our Savior and we see him as he is, what our text then sees is we're going to see that his, he's powerful. We're going to see that he is the one who can actually change my life and change me. The next couple of verses there, looking at verses 4 through 8, it says, And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. See, this series of events that shows us the power of Jesus, the position of Jesus, that he is the very son of God. We, could, we want to speculate and think through, and I think it's a good question to ask, why Elijah and Moses? Why are they showing up? And Moses, we know, died, according to uh, the Torah. It tells us that Moses dies and doesn't enter the promised land. Elijah gets taken up in a fiery chariot in, in the book uh, of uh, 1 Kings, and he, and he goes there, and, and so we see these, these men, and, and what are they supposed to do? And so it's speculated, well, is it because they didn't die? Well, the problem with that is Moses died. Elijah maybe didn't. He got called up, but... Moses died. Or we can maybe think, well, what about, maybe it's just representing the law and the prophets. Moses wrote the law and then the prophets. Probably a hard thing because Elijah wasn't really seen as necessarily the author of that. But what they do have in common is that both Elijah and Moses were great prophets. 
They were great prophets who at one point were up on a high mountain and God himself spoke to them. And I think this is a signal to these Jewish men who would know the Old Testament really, really well, like Peter, James, and John. It's signaling, listen, Elijah and Moses are here and we're up on a mountain. What do you think is getting ready to happen? God's getting ready to speak and he's getting ready to say something very, very important. So listen up. And in fact, in Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses writes this. He says, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. And what does this passage tell us? God shows up in a cloud, says, This is my beloved son, and what does he say? Listen to him. This passage shows that Jesus is the, the great prophet. We see that Jesus is, as the Son of God, he is prophet, priest, and king. We talk about that a lot. We've said that a lot. That he fulfills all these Old Testament scriptures that are about him. Like Moses and Elijah, they were just foreshadowing the great prophet to come. David, as a king, was foreshadowing the great king to come. The, the Levites are just foreshadowing the great priest that is to come. Jesus is that prophet. Jesus is the one that has the power. He's the one who has the authority. And what also would have happened is we should be calling to mind Malachi 4, 4 through 6, because it talks about both Moses and Elijah. And it says this, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. See, the day of the Lord, that day, the awesome day of the Lord, it is God's final judgment at Jesus' second coming when he's going to rectify and make all things right. But what we need to see is that when God declares something, it's a guarantee. So we can see now that when Jesus comes this first time, that second coming is as good as done. So even though some of these things aren't realized in history yet, we want to see that the Bible talks about them as if they are accomplished because the Bible is saying when God makes a promise, it will come true, okay? And so it's saying that, and he's saying Elijah is going to come, he's going to appear, he's going to prepare the way, but it's not, and we'll just learn about that in a second, he's actually talking about John the Baptist, and I'll, I'll draw that here out at the end, but that is what's happening, that, that he is looking to them and he's saying, listen, I'm going to change the world. Elijah and Moses are showing up and Jesus is there and he's transfigured and he's glorious and he's beautiful. And these normal guys, these fishermen are just watching that happen. And they're seeing the power of Jesus be displayed because, listen, Elijah and Moses are holding an audience with Jesus They're submitting themselves to him. They're these great, amazing prophets. One come from the dead. One come from, I don't even know what to call it when you get caught up in a fiery chariot, right? Like that's where they're at and they're there. And Peter and James and John, they know that. And they're just these ordinary guys. They're just three fishermen who flunked out of rabbi school. Like they they weren't smart enough to be the guys who were supposed to be there. They're just there. 
And Peter does what many of us do, and, and it's easy to give him a hard time, but I think he's just trying to be hospitable. Like, I don't, like, I don't know what he's thinking. They're like having a sleepover. I don't, like, I'll build you a tent, you know? I, I guess he thinks they're going to be there longer. I'll build these booths for you to, to stay in. I'll build one for you and Jesus. Like, like that's got to be why I'm here, right? i got to be here just to, like, serve these guys because I'm not worthy to be here. I guess Jesus brought me up here so I could just build them something because I don't know. What, it, it, it must be good. i got to be here. But there's these ordinary men watching this extraordinary thing take place. I mean, it's truly amazing. And Peter, in just ignorance and not knowing what to do, not knowing what to say and being afraid, just kind of blurts this thing out. I'll build you three tents. That's not God's plan for him in that moment. It's almost like Peter's little silly blurt out. It just gets ignored. Like, it's whatever, Peter. Because God shows up in a cloud, which is something he does all throughout the Old Testament. He shows up to his people. You can think about in the Exodus as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He shows up in a cloud. And this is God the Father. And he speaks to them. He says, this is my son. Listen to him. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Peter's not supposed to be talking in this moment. He's supposed to be listening in this moment, but that's where he is. And I look at that, and he's just this normal, normal guy. And it tells us, and suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Now, we know the end of the story, that Jesus is going to send these guys out on a mission to make disciples of all nations. Jesus is going to use these guys to literally change the entire world. And I think that is so interesting because if you're going to change the world and if you're going to go announce some really, really good news, it seems like the prophets raised from the dead would be a pretty good choice for that. If you could bring Moses back from the dead, wouldn't that be a better runner-up than, Peterman, than F- Peter the fisherman who doesn't know when to keep his mouth shut? What about Elijah, the amazing miracles, the man of faith that he was? He gets talked about later in the book of James because he literally is able to pray and rain falls down after a drought. Wouldn't that be a better option than John, who when he writes his gospel has to put in little things about how he's faster than Peter and made it to the tomb first? James, who who has these real struggles of faith, and difficulty, James and John, who want to be the greatest, and they just don't even get it, like, oh, we want to be awesome. Wouldn't these two prophets be such a better choice? But it's not the way Jesus does it. He chooses these three broken, ordinary men to see this extraordinary event. Second Corinthians 4, 6-7 through seven, says this, for God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now remember, in this passage, in Matthew's account, the face of Jesus glows, and it shines. But we have this treasure, talking about the gospel, in jars of clay, talking about our bodies, us, who we are. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? To show that the surpassing power of God, or the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You wield some serious power 
when you're not afraid to call it the B-team of fishermen, when you have got angel armies and prophets at the stead that you could use at any time to accomplish your will. But he chooses Peter, James, John. He chooses me, and he chooses you, ordinary people, who will live just normal lives to accomplish an amazing thing, the announcement of the kingdom of God. And he does that to display his power, his righteousness, his glory. We want to see this morning, our application point is this, is to know that in our weakness, God's power is displayed. It's not through what makes you great or good. It's what makes you weak that God displays his glory in your life. Jesus is left here, and it says, and, and it's almost redundant, and they no longer saw anyone but, but with them, Jesus only. He's really trying to, it's just Jesus left. Because what he's trying to say is, that's all we need. You don't need Elijah. You don't need Moses. You don't need that to do this. You need Jesus. He has all the power. He's the one that's going to change the world. And yet, just to drive home their ordinariness, we want to see in our final point, they're still kind of clueless. They still don't really get it. Because as they're coming down from the mountain, he charged them, tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now, this is really interesting there because this is actually the last time in Mark's gospel where where Jesus is explicit in that command. He's going to say something. There's going to be an implicit thing at the end of chapter 9 here where he's going to say he didn't want them to know that he was there. But this is the last really explicit Jesus said, do not tell anyone who I am. But it's the first time that he gives a stipulation. Don't tell anyone who I am. What? Until. Until after the resurrection. And they have no idea what's going on, but this is what Jesus says. And that's what I wanted you to see. It, the gospel is changing the story. He's beelining for the cross and the resurrection. The rest of this gospel is heading towards Jesus, fully announcing himself, <clears throat> not just to a couple fishermen, but to the entire world. Not just a couple of select few people, but to everybody. This is who I am. And they're going to do that. But they got to wait until after the resurrection. It says, so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning, what is this rising from the dead might mean? It means they're going to raise from the dead. Like, we know that. We have that benefit. But it's so unbelievable, right? Like, somebody's going to raise from the dead. They're like, that's got to be a matter. There's no way that can be literal. But they, they get shocked. And it is. They're trying to figure out what that is. And yet they do what all of us do. They ask a question that's totally irrelevant. When they should be asking about Jesus... In his kingdom, they ask him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? All this thing, it's all about how Jesus is great and autumn. Hey, why do they say about Elijah? Now, I think we can understand that. We can resonate with them because they just saw Elijah. And Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first. So even though they're asking a question about Elijah, Jesus is going to use that question to, to talk about what they need to talk about. And that's the suffering on the cross and the resurrection from the dead. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written, and how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as is written of them. 
So we're going to see as, as we look at this that Jesus is using that conversation. We need to talk about what we need to talk about, guys. And that's this, that I'm going to have to suffer and die. That's really the whole point of the transfiguration. He's showing them this glory and his power because they're going to watch him be weak. And they need to remember his power and his glory because he's telling them, I'm going to be like all these other prophets. And so while Jesus is the greatest prophet, these other prophets' lives foreshadowed the life of Jesus. And in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 17, it has the same story. It gives us a little more information. In Matthew 17, 12 through 13, we're talking about Elijah. Who is Elijah? It tells them, but I did tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased, so that also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood they're speaking to them of John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 11, he even talks about this even, even more. We won't read it for the sake of time today. But even more, he talks about that John the Baptist was there and he was to prepare the way of the Lord. John the Baptist came, if we can remember the Christmas story, we didn't, we didn't get to talk about this part, but in Luke chapter one, John the Baptist is, is a miracle birth as well. His, his mother, Elizabeth, was barren and unable to have children. And he, his father was a priest and his father talks to an angel, gets muted for a little bit, can't talk because he doesn't believe him. And, and John the Baptist becomes born. And John the Baptist is a cousin of Jesus and he was brought about to prepare the way of the Lord because he preached a baptism of repentance. He was helping people become humble and get their hearts right so they might prepare the way to hear the gospel message of Jesus, which not only was repentance, but also repentance and grace and forgiveness that he would come. But John the Baptist, that's not the last part of the story, See, John the Baptist, because he's a prophet and he proclaims what is true, he calls out King Herod for taking his brother Philip's wife. And because of that, he gets imprisoned. He gets captured. And the Jewish people don't advocate for him. They don't try to get him out. Instead, they say, good, keep him in there. And John the Baptist is in there until one day at a party, a young girl is tricked by her mother to go please some powerful men and ask for the head of John the Baptist. And King Herod makes a grave, sinful decision, and he has John the Baptist beheaded. I see John the Baptist is killed. He is like many, many prophets. In Luke 11, Jesus is calling out the Pharisees, and he's talking about how they have done it, how they have always persecuted God's true prophets. In Luke 11:49, there also the wisdom of God said that I will send them prophets and apostles some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it would be required of this generation. He uses these two prophets, Abel. Abel is Cain's brother, and Cain murders Abel in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 4. Zechariah is, is talked about in the book of Second Chronicles. In the Hebrew uh, ordering of the Old Testament, Genesis would be first, and Second Chronicles would actually be the last book of the Bible. So it's the same books as our Old Testament, but it's ordered differently. What Jesus is trying to say, he's trying to say, from the beginning, from that first prophet Abel to the last prophet Zechariah, what have they done? They've killed God's prophets. They've shed their blood and they've killed them. 
uh, Zechariah, even to fit the story more, his, his dad, it says they forgot his, uh, the, the good deeds of his father and they killed him anyway. Jesus, they're going to forget the good deeds of his father, God, and they're going to kill him anyway. This is foreshadowing that Jesus is, is going to suffer the same way that all of God's prophets have suffered. That Jesus is going to do this. And, and that's what's going to happen. That we can see here that, yeah, Jesus is saying, I have to suffer. This is God's way. But here's what's really interesting is Jesus brings Peter, James, and John to see this, and he's telling them about their suffering, and they're clueless here, but they're not clueless forever. You see, they do understand, because what Jesus is also calling these men to is to follow in his steps of suffering. He is saying, if you're going to follow me, you are also going to suffer because of me, in the same way all these other prophets have. And listen to what Peter writes later. He's clueless here in Mark. But Peter, when he sees the resurrected Christ, when he sees that happen, the Holy Spirit falls on him at Pentecost. He becomes this totally changed mass. Man, listen to what Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, 19-21. He writes this, For this is a, and this is crazy, gracious thing. Look what he's going to call a gracious thing. This is grace, guys. Gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. As Christians, our number one goal should be be like Jesus. When we look at the Bible, it says, what does it look like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus? It means to walk and endure suffering even when it's unjust, especially when it's unjust. Because in those moments, we get to relate to our Christ, relate to our Savior who is beaten, reviled, rejected by men in a completely unjust way. There's no death that has ever occurred in this world that's more undeath, unjust than the death of Jesus Christ. He did not deserve to die. Yet he died for our sake. We are to follow in the footsteps of Jesus as a sufferer. Our application point is that we are to follow in his steps as a sufferer, and to do this, we must see his glory. Jesus is showing them his glory in the transfiguration so that they might see why suffering is worth it. It is only when we see Christ as beautiful and radiant, when we see his power displayed in our weaknesses, that we'll be willing to lay down everything in order to follow him. I want to read from the end of Mark because I want you to see the, the verses that lead up to this. What leads to the transfiguration is Mark eight thirty four says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever should save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? 
What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. And he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And then he shows them the transfiguration. I think that's what he's talking about. The people standing here that heard that story, you would need to pick up your cross to follow me. You're going to have to bear suffering, bear up under unjust, horrible things that other people will do to you. But here's how you're going to endure it. You're going to look to the glory of Jesus. That's the only way you can endure suffering. No one would ever do this. Who, who, like, what kind of cell is that? Like, hey, want to be a Christian? You'll get to suffer the rest of your life. But that, in some ways, is what we're saying. We're saying, I'm willingly signing up to suffer. Why? Because it's worth it. It is so worth it. These same guys, Peter, James, John, in Acts chapter 5, they go and they get beaten with rods because they were sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. They literally take them and beat them with wooden rods. And it says this in Acts 5, verse 41, they, then they left the presence of the council, the people who beat them, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, talking about the name of Jesus. And then what did they do? And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They got beaten with rods and told, quit preaching that name of Jesus. And they went away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer, and they did not stop. They refused to quit. Why would you ever do that? Why would you ever keep going? Because they saw the glory of Jesus. Because he took them up on a high mountain and he showed them their glory, who he really is. And they know that this life is temporal, that this isn't the end, that there's something better and more amazing coming, that the kingdom is on its way. I want to close this morning with this, something I've been praying about as we just keep enduring difficulty. Church planting is hard. Church planting in a pandemic is nuts. I mean, we're just trying to catch momentum, and it feels like every time we do, half the church gets sick. And here's what I want to suggest is that God is teaching our small church in this moment steadfastness. What does it look like to keep going when it's hard? Steadfastness isn't a word that a lot of times we use in everyday conversation. So I want to use a word that might help you a little bit, but only if we get the right half of how we use it. And that's toughness. Christians are tough, gritty people, and they have been for centuries. Now, I'm not talking about the toughness that says, if you say something to me, I'm going to get up in your face, and I want to fight you. It's not a violent toughness. I'm talking about the toughness that has the resolve to say, I will endure unjust treatment because I know what's coming next. I'm going to do the things that are hard to do willingly and joyfully because my spirit is strong and I'm willing to do that. 
we're going to make it as a church plant, as a community of faith, we're going to have to be tough. We're going to have to exhibit some spiritual grit. Because sometimes you're going to get here and the setup team is going to be small. And you're going to carry chairs. And you're going to prepare all these things. And the crowd's going to be little. And you're going to think, oh, what did I do all that for? There's going to be times where you want to host a Bible study and you're going to be sitting there by yourself and no one else is going to show up. There's going to be times when the people that we invest in and love and disciple walk away from the faith, walk away from us, say hurtful things to us, wound us, betray us. It happened to Jesus. They all run away from him. They didn't have the grit of Acts 5 at the end of the book of Mark. We're going to see at the end of the book of Mark, Jesus is left alone. They all run away from him. But by the Spirit's power and God's sanctifying work in their life, by the time we get to Acts chapter 5, they're getting beat up and they're saying, I can't believe I'm counterworded to do this and there's nothing that's going to stop me. We might not be there yet, but that's the work that God wants to do in your life. He wants to build you spiritually tough and strong that you are willing to endure even when it's really, really hard. That you're going to keep on going even as you mount up under the troubles and difficulty of this life. And that's the opportunity, and I mean that, the opportunity that we have being a church plant in this day and era. I don't know, and I don't want to be a naysayer, I don't want to be a fear monger, but I don't know what life looks like for my sons and daughter. The world seems to be changing rapidly, but God does not change. We've got we've to teach them toughness, and not a violent toughness, but I just mean endurance, steadfastness, the willingness to stand when the world is coming against you, telling you what you believe is wrong, telling you what you believe is immoral, you say, no, 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 no. God, God tells us what's right. God tells us what's moral. John the Baptist did not get beheaded for telling people that Jesus loved them. He got beheaded because he told the man, that woman is not your wife. You cannot sleep with her. You cannot take her. You cannot abuse your authority like this. We are called to stand up and stand firm to do it in gentleness and love, but to do it. And that's going to require some grit. But the beauty of the gospel is when we are called to resilience, it's not toughen up. It's not pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Don't be a sissy. The gospel says, look to the glory of God. Look that there's something else that far outweighs these sufferings. That these present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to our future glory. And that's the amazing good news of the gospel. Is that I can say, I am so weak. God, I want to give up. This is hard. And God says, I'm going to display my power in your weakness. In your ordinariness. In all the ways that you're not good enough, I'm going to show them how good I am. And that's the story we get to tell over and over and over again. 
a beautiful story of redemption as Redemption Hill Church, of how God is redeeming individuals and making them look more like himself day by day by day. And we will see that when we see the glory of Christ for all that he is. Let us pray. Father God, I love you. I thank you for every good gift that you give to us, for everything that you have blessed us with, uh, even the ability to walk back and play guitar right now so we can sing and worship when things don't go according to our plans. Lord, I pray as we sing this last song that, God, we would do that in such a way that we would sing it out, that we would taste and see the goodness of God, and that would be the thing that pushes us to show resilience in the midst of difficulty and and trouble, even our own trouble, even our own weaknesses. God, that you would change us and move us. I ask this in your name. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand.